Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. In this edition, you're going to learn about Hamilton's traffic calming measures, what other cities are doing to handle encampments, and if tiny homes can help the housing crisis. We'll also get into workers' rights, financial advice, and game day for the Ticats. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It wasn't so fine earlier this week because a pedestrian who was crossing Fennel Avenue near Upper Wellington was hit by a vehicle and then later died. A 77-year-old man was hit by an SUV that was driven by a 91-year-old from Hamilton and was the city's second pedestrian fatality tied to a motor vehicle collision this year. Now, last year, you will remember, there were 11 pedestrian deaths in Hamilton, including that of famed conductor Boris Brott. And that led to a new crop of traffic calming measures in the city, most notably the ones that have been installed along Main Street through the core. Here to talk about that and, uh, well, some of the plans that are going forward is Mike Field, Manager of Transportation Operations with the City of Hamilton. Mike, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Rick. Thanks a lot. Traffic calming measures, you know, you look at the stats, two pedestrian fatalities so far this year compared to 11 last year. We got to say, I I guess they're working. Yeah, anytime someone dies on uh, our roads, uh, it's really tragic uh, situation. And it's something definitely that no one wants to hear about. Um, And and in 2019, us as a municipality, we committed to uh, the principles of Vision Zero. And that uh, that is basically zero fatality and zero injuries across the whole city. Uh, As you pointed out last year, we had a particularly high number of pedestrians who were struck and killed in the city. Uh, There were were, um, seven incidents uh, uh, on city roadways, which resulted in nine fatalities. There were other fatalities that were on private property, which uh, as a municipality, we're not tracking. Those are, those are on private property. Right. Um, and then comparatively this year, we, we've uh, fortunately only had two. And as you mentioned, we've gone and we've in- implemented a, a number of measures since 2019, but uh, we did a, a number of notable things uh, last year, uh, particularly along the main street corridor to improve the safety of pedestrians. And I'm hopeful, that we're seeing the aggregate benefits of all of those things that we're doing across the city uh, to, to improve the safety of not only pedestrians, but all road users. Well, some of those things that were implemented and brought in last year include uh, the advanced crosswalk signal for, for pedestrians, uh, no right turns on a red light. Uh, we've had one less lane on Main Street. Uh, I know traffic lights have been changed. They're not all synced all along that route. There's new HSR uh, drop-off pickup zones, if you will. Um, has there been one or maybe a couple of those that were really impactful that you're really seeing some noticeable differences? They all kind of work together to to uh, have have a large advantage uh, in cooperation of each other. Um, however, the, the one that's probably uh, the, the best in that corridor is the leading ped intervals where pedestrians get to cross the road before any vehicles move. Uh, there's a lot of advantages to, to doing that. Um, obviously, the pedestrian gets to start moving before any vehicles are entering uh, or, or, or moving through the intersection. Um, they get the head start. There's a lot of advantages to them. Drivers have better visibility of them within the intersection. And statistically, um, you know, the, the traffic safety world is very uh, driven by statistics. And, and that type of countermeasure can... Uh, uh, reduce the number of injury and fatal collisions by pedestrians for up 
to about 60%, so pretty significant number. Given that, are we going to see more of those advanced walk or pedestrian signals installed elsewhere in the city? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and the answer is yes. We're going to see lots of uh, lots of enhancements across the city, including, um, you know, no right turn on red and and pedestrian leading pedestrian intervals and that sort of thing. One of the key things that we do every year is we uh, summarize the collision performances across the city through an annual collision report, and we're going to be presenting that to council uh, in uh, in sometime in late August, late late next month. But uh, within that document, we identify the top. 10 uh, intersections in the city that have the most number of collisions and then the top 10 road segments in the city that have the most number of collisions. And then we are undertaking very intensive and comprehensive reviews. We call them in-service roadway safety audits of those locations. And we look for what are the things that we need to do as a municipality to prevent those from happening and solve the problem and get those those, uh, top 10 locations off the top 10 into the bottom of the list. That's pretty cool. We're getting an update on uh, traffic safety and traffic calming measures in the city of Hamilton from Mike Field, the manager of transportation operations with the city. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Some have said, and I've been in this boat too, and I've been clogged in congestion downtown on Main Street and sometimes on King, is that the traffic flow has been hampered. The The congestion is real. It's It's just too slow getting downtown. Is that what you want to see? On some roadways, for sure, um, we want to move traffic slower. We have speeding issues across the city, so slowing down traffic uh, is one of the things that uh, we're looking to do across the city. Um, we we have, over the past number of years, converted all of the residential areas um, from 50 kilometers an hour to 40 kilometers an hour and 30 kilometers in school zones. Uh, so we definitely want to slow people down. Um, there, there's obviously some... some uh, relation to a pedestrian being struck um, by a car that's going really fast compared to one that's going slow and and how um, uh, the probability of them being killed or injured in those instances. So in some cases, uh, those the congestion or the slowdown in traffic is by design um, to uh, the benefit of all road users. Um, and I can understand the frustration of drivers who are used to driving quickly from point A to point B, and we're implementing these measures that slow them down. Um, but the, you know, the benefit is uh, for all road users because uh, vehicles who travel slower, they're also uh, safer as well. We got a text from a, a longtime loyal CHML listener on the congestion problem and how, how traffic is slowing down. And they were questioning the environmental impact. If we have so many vehicles in sometimes in gridlock downtown, is that having a negative effect? I know that's not your department, but it's kind of an offshoot of what you're trying to do. Is there a yin and yang to this? There's always compromises in, in what we do and the choices we make for sure. And what we do is we look to what what are we trying to achieve and and what compromises are willing we willing to accept um and, and for sure when we're when cars are delayed um you know they're going to sit there and idle longer and that sort of thing but uh um i think when when we're talking and looking at how many people uh, died on our streets last year and uh, we say to ourselves um 
is it better to have uh, a little bit slower vehicle traffic and a little bit wait time, or is it better to have more people uh, struck and killed and injured on our streets? And I think everyone would agree uh, that we want we don't want to have people uh, hit and killed on our streets. Absolutely. And, you know, years from now, when the electrification of automobiles is at full tilt, we really won't have that uh, issue with the environmental impact. So that's great to see. Uh, we'll have to uh, continue this discussion another time because I do want to ask you about two-way conversion of Maine, which I know is coming down the line. And whether or not that's going to make our city even safer, but we'll leave that discussion for a later date. Mike, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. London, Ontario, and some local community organizations launched a short-term response to encampments in that city, and it's highlighted by what is being called 90-minute service depots that provide the most basic needs to individuals in need. So think water and food, hygiene supplies. Uh, Here to talk about it is Dr. Abe Outshorn, the Associate Professor and Associate Director at the Arthur Labatt Family School of Nursing and the Arthur Labatt Family Chair in Nursing Leadership in Health Equity at Western University. Dr. Outshorn, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Uh, just for reference, have you offered any assistance on the development of these uh, service depots or, or even London's encampment response? Yeah, so uh, my background is working as a nurse with folks at street level, and uh, that's been in London, Ontario my, uh, my whole time. And I now uh, do research and uh, support uh, strategies such as this one, and yes, I uh, as past chair of the London Homeless Coalition, I'm uh, I'm always involved in uh, giving our my, my advice and support to our different strategies. That's great to hear. So every day this month, 90-minute service depots have helped vulnerable people at four parks in London. So what is going on at these depots? Yeah, so it is really like you said. It's it's uh, basic support for you know helping people just stay safe and healthy and alive, uh, and then also if uh, folks have questions and need to get some assistance, know where to go, um, things like uh, rostering for housing supports uh, or looking for kind of more long-term uh, health care options, uh, they, they can be directed through that service. But really, the, the main thing is, is primarily just to meet people's basic needs. Are you seeing a noticeable impact with these individuals? Yeah, and, and I think what's the most important impact uh, is about actually keeping people kind of situated for a period of time. And, and, and that's what I think is, it, it's not just that it's, you know, it's water, it's a washroom. The washroom has been a, a huge benefit. Um, but what happens when folks are in encampments is if we just use sort of a bylaw approach, it, it tends to just push people along and around and move them constantly and that actually becomes harder for folks who are doing outreach, who are coming up with housing solutions to find folks. Because, you know, if the bylaw officer is telling them, look, I'm going to ticket you if you don't go. On the flip side, if you actually kind of keep people healthy and safe and in place, then when a opening comes up in housing that someone's been on the list for, you know where to find them and, and can connect them to that service or when a medication is up for renewal and the we have a street bus here, if the, the bus uh, knows where to find them, then they can get them that assistance. And so really what we're seeing is that sort of stabilizing people in place so that more long-term support and help can be offered to them. 
these 90-minute service depots are stationed and they happen at the same time every day, which I think, you know, for for the for those who are in encampments, they know where to go, when to go, and, and, and how to get the stuff they need. But it's happening at four parks in London. Are these sanctioned encampment sites, if you will, in London? Yeah, and, and absolutely. It, it is that, you know, and, and there's some mutuality involved in this process, which is, um, you know, the, the city and social services asking people, you know, if you're going to stay, stay in a place that isn't going to be in the way, right? You know, don't be on pathways, don't um, be on, you know, playground equipment or something like that. And, and uh, on the same time, if, if you're kind of in a space that, that's respectful um, and sharing space with people, then we will let you stay and we'll provide support to you. So, yes, absolutely. These are, are located in, in places where they're close to encampments that are kind of more long term um, because they're in, in places that, you know, don't affect other folks. Uh, and so we we want people to stay at least. So, like I said, we can find them to help them when, when help is available. There's a big debate in Hamilton and many other communities in regards to encampments and, and what to do, whether we should have sanctioned sites, how many tents should be allowed, where they should be situated. Have you noticed encampments in London growing? Because that's one of the fears in Hamilton is if we say, hey, we have sanctioned encampment sites now, and now everyone under the sun who you know needs a place to go and, and doesn't really have a place to go will now get crowded into these parks. Is, is that the case in London? Well, I mean, the, the case is that they have grown, but that growth is is pre you know sanctioning essentially. it's It's growth that happened uh, during the pandemic. Um, and uh, as we saw, the, you know, the massive uh, increase in rents and, and rent evictions and the, that sort of thing happening, the encampments grew. So I, I suspect Hamilton has probably seen the same thing because it's been pretty much across the board uh, in, in all of Canada, actually, that the number of encampments have increased. So this is more a response to say, look, the encampments have increased. How do we come up with a permanent solution? How do, how do we make it so that these folks are most likely to get into housing and stay housed instead of, like I said, sort of just kind of chasing people around and maybe solving the problem for today, <laughs> but making it worse for tomorrow. So, yeah, you know, I, I couldn't say that um, because it, it's still a very new strategy. So, uh, you know, we don't know the long term effect, uh, but it's in place because the encampments had already significantly like increased tenfold, essentially, from where, you know, we're seeing maybe 30 folks uh, out. We are seeing over 200 folks uh, out in encampments. Not sure what the, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but not sure what the exact numbers are in Hamilton here in terms of the growth. But yes, we have seen more and more tents pop up in in parks and local places, which is unfortunate. But as you mentioned, it's just a part of what is happening in our society with the cost of living. In our final, we got about 45 seconds. We know this is a short-term solution. What long-term solutions are you investigating? Yeah, so absolutely. There's a really big move in, in London that we're calling a whole community response where we've seen uh, all sorts of sectors come to the table for the first time to talk about homelessness. And that includes our healthcare services, our big hospitals, it includes justice services, it includes, uh, you know, all sectors that, that folks are, are touching who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, and that response really has permanent supportive housing as the end piece. And so, that's homes that are affordable, and if folks need some support to stay in that home, that it's provided to them. So that, that's really the only long-term solution, and that's 
where keeping people stable in an encampment is for the goal of getting them to that house. Great information by Dr. Abe Outshorn, uh, Associate Professor at Western University. Dr. Outshorn, thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, as Hamilton investigates ways to boost its housing supply, some people are wondering if tiny homes could be a viable option. Well, lo and behold, the Tiny Home Show begins today at the Ancaster Fairgrounds, and it could provide some answers. Ken Bickendam is the founder of LegalSecondSuites.com and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Ken, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. It's uh, it's great to be back with you again, like always, and uh, you know to continue to talk about uh, what uh, like a, such an uh, important topic here. It's also the focus of our Twitter poll question of the day at AM nine hundred CHML. Can you see yourself living in a tiny home? Can you see yourself living in a tiny home? No, it's it's funny you say that because you know, uh, you know, I'm sitting here right now actually at home, and I I live on a country property here, a hobby farm, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there's been many times I thought to myself, you know what, Ken, uh, I need to downsize. I need to kind of simplify my life here. Um, you know, a big property comes with a lot of maintenance, a lot of grass cutting and maintenance. And, um, you know, when you have a, you know, even a normal size home, I have a normal size, you know, home here, a ranch bungalow. And you know what? It still takes a lot of maintenance to keep the place maintained. I'm like, man, I should just downsize and live in a tiny home. (laughs) And um, it crosses my mind all the time. I believe it. Could tiny homes help alleviate the housing crisis? We know we need a lot more supply. Could this be part of the answer? You know what? Tiny homes is is another option. It's another tool in our tool belt as far as, um, you know, helping provide more housing and to help solve the housing crisis that we're in. Um, Look, not everybody... Um, you know, wants to live in a tiny home. Not everybody is able to, you know, people do have larger families or they have mobility issues or what have you. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not for everyone, but, um, it's, there's definitely a lot of people out there who, who like that concept of, you know, tiny living, living simply, um, living off grid, uh, you know, a smaller footprint, smaller carbon footprint. Um, you know, it's not going to solve our housing crisis, but it's definitely, you know, another option for people. Ken Beacondam is the founder of LegalSecondSuites.com and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about tiny homes and the tiny home show kicks off later on this morning at the Ancaster Fairgrounds and goes all week long. You can get info and tickets to the show at tinyhome.show. Talk to us about this show. I know you're going to be making a presentation tomorrow morning. What can people see and do at the show? Yeah, you know what? Um, you know what? You can clearly see it from the uh, the main road. You're going to see all the different tiny home builders that we have on display here. Uh, they've all brought their their units there. You know, tiny homes. They come on wheels. Uh, you can you can tow them like a trailer. Um, and there's some really cool, innovative, beautiful you know beautiful spaces here that people have created. Um, there's a lot of vendors and exhibitors who, who have brought their, you know, new and interesting technology in regards to tiny homes, composting toilets, incinerating toilets. Um, there's, there's vendors there that, you know, are representing different tiny home communities and organizations. 
Um, you know, there's designers and architects there. You know, our company is represented there as as a, a design uh, build uh, consulting company. You know, doing secondary dwelling units and additional dwelling units, and you know, it's pretty cool stuff going on. Um, it's going to be a hot one out there today, so please make sure you know you bring your sunscreen and uh, and a bottle of water. But um, it's going it's an exciting show. Also an exciting show is the Building Hamilton Show with uh, Ken Beacondam from LegalSecondSuites.com. The next airing of that show on 900 CHML comes at you on August the 5th at 10 a.m. And we'll talk about the home show, which I know you're going to be attending. I'll be there as well. And looking forward to a lot of our listeners hanging out at the Ancaster Fairgrounds. Ken, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning and have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks, Rick. See you soon. Ken Beacondam, the founder of LegalSecondSuites.com. And again, for tickets or information to the Tiny Home Show at the Ancaster Fairgrounds, go online to tinyhome.show. Should be a very exciting event. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I got an email from a Good Morning Hamilton listener who said their son has been a casual worker with temp agency Kelly Services working at Mondelez and really didn't have a good experience. So they write, quote, The immigrants are definitely scared to say anything, thus making it easy for the temp agency to do whatever they want with the casual employees. They out-and-out lie to these people, even going as far as telling my son that he was going to get hired full-time. I hear talk about Canada needing to grow the population, but really what they're saying is they need more immigrants to use and abuse so companies can grow their profits without having to pay any benefits. Is there any sort of rule book that they are supposed to follow? And does anyone even keep tabs on places like this? Is there anyone at any level of government who cares about these people? Part-time used to be just that, part-time, because that's all somebody wanted at that time. Now it's just a tool to increase profit, and it's just too damn bad if you're part of it. It's just heartbreaking. Great email from Good Morning Hamilton listener, and thanks for sending that to me. And... It's the focus of our segment and our discussion we're about to have with a, as we know, a massive influx of immigrants coming to Canada over the next few years, 500,000 a year. Many of them are going to find themselves in temporary positions, casual positions. So the question is, what rights do these casual and temporary workers have in Canada? Let's ask the number one guy when it comes to employment law here in the nation, Lior Samfiro, national co-managing partner with Samfiro Tumarkin, LLP. Lior, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing great, Rick. Thanks for having me on. I'm sure you've heard of these types of complaints while hosting the Employment Law Show for years, while dealing with customers and clients over the years. What rights do casual workers have in this nation? So this is a great question and certainly something that comes up fairly often. Uh, I do get emails very similar to the ones you just read. So let me kind of break this down. From a legal standpoint, an employee, part-time, full-time, temporary or otherwise, all have the same protections in the eyes of the law. They have the same rights and the same entitlements that every employee has. The law actually does not distinguish between someone that's been working full-time for 30 years or someone that's a a, a temporary casual employee. Now, let's specifically address what this lady was saying. For example, she was talking about benefits. Presumably she's meaning, you know, the the health benefits that that are available to most employers. There's actually no legal requirement on any employer to provide benefits to its employees. That's something that a lot of employers do. 
uh, as, as part of compensation and as a retention mechanism. But the law does not impose that obligation. Therefore, an employer can choose who to provide benefits to. It could, for example, say, I'm only going to provide benefits to employees that uh, earn a certain amount of income. Or they could be crazy and say, I'm only going to provide benefits to those who are hired on Tuesdays. I mean, that would be silly, (laughs) but an employer can decide that. So some employers may say, we're only going to provide benefits to these categories of people, you know, those that have been with us a certain period of time or do certain jobs. Nothing wrong with that legally. We can certainly talk about the the morality of that, but but legally they can do that. Where a lot of part-time, casual, temporary employees have rights where they don't realize is actually when it comes to the end of employment. A lot of these individuals, just like the one that you were reading about earlier, would believe that because of the nature of their job, their employment could just end at any time, that they're not owed any compensation, well, that would be absolutely wrong. Even in that type of role, if the position ends, if, if they're out of a job now, they're going to be entitled to the severance that's calculated in the same way that it would be for any employee. And that severance can absolutely be measured in months. Some employers might not even realize. Definitely the temporary agencies may not realize that. But the law is very clear when it comes to those things. So the rights are actually there, Rick. We've talked about casual workers, temporary workers, full-time, part-time, temporary foreign workers are in this mix, certainly. We've also heard the term gig economy, gig workers. They would fall under this blanket as well, right? So with gig economy, it gets actually more complicated and more interesting. And the reason for that, a lot of companies, you know, we're talking the the Ubers, the DoorDashers of, of the world, look at their their employees, call them that, as actually not being employees. They look at them as being independent contractors. So they're saying, yeah, you, you're, you're not really our employee. You're providing services for us. And because you're not an employee, you don't necessarily have the same rights. That is a very hotly debated and contested issue. It's at various levels of courts right now in Canada, and frankly, throughout the world. And I expect that at some point over the next year or two, we'll have some definitive guidance on this. It is my view that these individuals are, in fact, employees and that they've been mischaracterized as uh, contractors. And because of that, do and should have all the rights that employees have. Uh, and, and we'll see what the courts say about that. But as of right now, that, that is a bit of a gray area. That is interesting. Lior Samfiro is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Lior is a national co-managing partner of Samfiro Tamarkin LLP online at stlawyers.ca. And you can hear Lior uh, every weekday or weekend here on 900 CHML at noon with the Employment Law Show. I want to ask you about, because this was announced earlier on this month, that starting January 1st, Ontario is going to require temporary foreign worker agencies and recruiters to be licensed. What impact is that going to have? You know, it's, uh, it's certainly going to make it uh, more, more onerous for these uh, agencies to operate. It's going to make it uh, more costly for them to operate. And we may, uh, we may see that these agencies ultimately only deal uh, only are going to survive in cases where they're going to deal with, with certain categories of individuals. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of these agencies really uh, are, are there to, to help employers, but employers can 
bring these employees on their own. And, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions is that, for employers at least, is that if we hire uh, an employee through a temp agency, then we, the employer, don't have the same obligation. Uh, we don't have to worry about their rights. The temp agency worries about that. Well, that's actually not even the case. Uh, the law imposes that obligation ultimately on the real employer. If I work for you, I come to your office every day, I do work for you, but it just so happens that someone else writes the check, it doesn't matter. You're still my employer. You still have obligations towards me. Uh, so I think uh, a lot of these temp agencies are going to have to figure out at the end of the day what makes sense for them, and, and we may get some, some correction out there in that uh, some employers and, and some agencies are going are gonna to not work together and we're going to see uh i think it's ultimately going to be better for employees uh because we're not just going to have these these temp agencies pop up uh, out there not knowing what they're doing and potentially uh, violating employee rights not because they want to just because they don't know any better very interesting stuff lior thank you for your time this morning Thank you, Rick. Lior Samfiro is a national co-managing partner, Samfiro Tamarkin LLP. Their website, stlawyers.ca. If you have an issue with your employer, stlawyers.ca, a great resource for you, as is the Employment Law Show, which you can hear Saturdays and Sundays at noon right here on 900 CHML. By the way, according to the government, the provincial government, last year there were about 2,300 temporary help agencies operating in this province. That's a lot. 114,000 workers were employed by these temp agencies. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, you might turn to your best friend, more likely a loved one, to get financial advice before doing anything else, right? You got a decision to make at home. Maybe you have some debt or or maybe you're you're wanting to spend some money or do an investment. More often than not, and it's come out in new data that shows that Many Canadians, at least half of them, will turn to family and friends first for financial advice before they'll contact a bank. Now, a bank is a very close second, but it kind of makes sense that family's first, right? You'll ask a loved one, hey, what do you think about this? Does this make sense? Should I do this? Shannon Terrell is a financial expert at Nerd Wallet Canada and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon, good morning. Thanks for waking up with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. This, I mean, this makes perfect sense. Fifty percent of Canadians say they'll they'll chat with family or even friends first before contacting a, a bank or even a financial advisor. Does this make sense to you as well? You know, I think it does make sense, and I think there could be a few factors at play here. So the first thing here is that you know it's convenient. You know, we don't need to make an appointment at a bank and drive down to a branch. We can just have these conversations from the comfort of our home with people that we know and trust. Second, you know, it's comfortable. Talking about your finances can be tough. So if the thought of reaching out to a financial professional is intimidating, it might make sense, like you said, that you might prefer to have that conversation with a family member or a friend. So all in all, the information doesn't really surprise me. What is a little concerning, at least to me, is that 39% say social media is their number one source for financial advice, even though about a quarter of those people say it's really not a trustworthy source. What can you tell us about financial advice on social media? You know, I think now more than ever, we are seeing financial influencers who are making their voices heard on social media. 
And I think social media can be a great place to get a pulse on public sentiment and absorb new ideas. You know, it might encourage financial literacy and get money conversations going, which is great. But I would say take what you see and you hear on social media with a grain of salt, even if it does appear to come from a reputable source. You want to remember that generic advice you see is not going to be specific to your financial situation. And of course, it might be helpful to connect with a financial professional who can objectively review your finances before you make any big financial moves. Speaking of a financial professional, 27% of Canadians say they turn to a financial advisor for financial advice first. Why are financial advisors uh, almost an afterthought? You know, I do think it's interesting. And as we mentioned, I think, you know, that comfort factor is is certainly um, here, uh, definitely at play and at work here. Um, I think, you know, folks are turning to their family and their friends and perhaps their banks first um, because it's easy. It's convenient, um, especially, you know, a lot of Canadians do have pretty high loyalty with their financial institutions. And so reaching out to that third party, that objective third party, that financial planner or advisor. Um, you know, you got to do homework. you got to do a little bit of shopping around to find the fit that works for you. And it just might not be as convenient as those other options. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Shannon Terrell, financial expert at Nerd Wallet Canada. We're talking about some data that's out that shows about half of Canadians will turn to family and friends first for financial advice before they contact a bank or go to other avenues. This data also shows that roughly one in five Canadians feel like their finances are spinning out of control, particularly the 25 to 44 age group. That age group has a ton of pressure on them financially, whether it's trying to find a place to live, starting or maintaining their career. Uh, talk about the the ups and uh, more or less the downs of that demographic. Uh, yes. So major financial concerns right now are the rising cost of living, inflation, high interest rates, and as you mentioned, home ownership. And I'll be the first to say it has been a challenging couple of years through the pandemic. We saw record-breaking rates of inflation last summer. The Bank of Canada has raised its policy interest rate 10 times since March of 2022. It's been tough, and I do understand the concern. So my biggest takeaway here is for anybody feeling like, as you said, your finances are out of control, explore your resources and get intentional and get more intentional about the actions that you take, um, especially if you feel like you are in over your head. Now might be the time to enlist the help of that that third-party professional. And if cost is an issue, see what's available locally. There may be nonprofit organizations or even community programs that can connect you with a financial planner or an advisor at a discounted rate. And if any of our listeners are finding themselves in a bind when it comes to money, what maybe, you know, maybe they're seeing those, uh, those bills pile up, maybe they're getting collection calls, acting quickly is, is key because that, that opens up a few more options for you. Absolutely. And, you know, as I said, it can be challenging to talk about money. And sometimes just having that other person in the room that is able to objectively have everything on the table, break it down with you and help you look at your money goals and set some for the future that feel reasonable and within reach, that can be such a game changer. So don't delay if you do feel like you're starting to feel a lot of anxiety around your finances 
do a little bit of research and see what's available locally. Shannon, I appreciate your insight and your expertise on this issue. Thanks for joining us this morning and enjoy your day. Thanks so much for having me. That is Shannon Terrell, financial expert at Nerd Wallet Canada. Check them out online, a great resource. If you're in a financial bind or otherwise, maybe you want to capitalize on something financially that can make it work for you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big game day for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Honestly, we just got to come out fast. Offense got to come out clicking on all cylinders. And the main thing we talk about, we got to put points on the board, touchdowns, not the field goals. I mean, we do a great job of getting the ball down the field into the red zone. We just got to capitalize on the points. Terry Godwin of the Tiger Cats discussing the the need to score some TDs instead of field goals, and we've seen that a bunch of times this season. But there is some encouraging news with this Tiger Cats team, despite their two and four record, as they get set to take on the three and three Red Blacks tonight in Ottawa. Quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell is back on the field after missing the last few games with an abductor injury. He is good to go, and here to talk about it is. Is Luke Tasker, color analyst on the Ticats Audio Network, and of course here on 900 CHML. Luke, good morning. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, Rick. Thank you. Good morning, and uh, great to be here. Looking forward to tonight. This is uh, this is not a knock on Matt Schultz or Taylor Powell, who I thought both played pretty well when they got in, but Bo's return has got to be a big boost for this offense. Yeah, I think it really is. And uh, you know, the first two games of the season that when Bo was there, the team. Uh, you know, still trying to find themselves. They've got two wins under their belt now. You're right, Matt Schiltz uh, played well, and Taylor Powell in last week's uh, performance, I was pretty impressed with uh, a young first-time starter. And uh, uh, But uh, back to Bo Levi Mitchell and a guy who's won Grey Cups and has uh, been playing at a high level for almost a decade, and uh, I, I, I'm excited to watch the offense operate sort of in the – the way it was intended to look from the very start of the season and uh, and to watch Bo Levi Mitchell, hopefully, like you heard there from Terry Godwin, uh, be able to drive down the field and put the ball in the end zone. This team has had issues in the red zone particularly. What has stuck out to you? Well, you know, you get down there and the, 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 the biggest thing in the CFL is being able to be productive on first down, and that doesn't change in the red zone. And when uh, when you get when you get a, a small gain, you know you're you're stuck at that two yard gain. No matter where you are in the field, uh, that's gonna that causes a really really big issue to try to keep that drive going. And you know you've seen at times the Ticats drive down the field and then have one play, uh, um, you know, uh, kind of cool off what was what was heating up to be a really nice drive. And uh, and it, it's uh, uh, a get fewer and fewer at when that second down situation is is further back um you've also seen a couple times in the red zone some penalties happen at inopportune times where the Ticats have have uh done the work gotten downfield and then uh uh we've seen a few times off on the offensive line uh and around the rest of the offense uh get backed up and and that's a real drive killer when all of a sudden you're looking at a first and 15 or a first and 20 at times uh because of a penalty so you know, a lot of this stuff is controllable, and I and I do expect the team to, to sort of to tighten up in a few of these uh, areas as we progress through the year. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Luke Tasker, color analyst with the Ticats Audio Network in 900 CHML. Kickoff tonight is 7.30. Pre-game show begins at 6.30. After the game, join us for the fifth quarter on 900 CHML, brought to you by Eastgate Ford. Dustin Crum and the Red Blacks uh, all of a sudden are the real deal. They're 3-3. Three and three. They've won two in a row, both 
both in overtime against Winnipeg and Calgary. What is uh, sticking out to you when you look at this Red Blacks team and how they're playing? Well, the the, the game before those two overtime wins almost went to overtime in Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, we came down to the absolute last, last play of the game, just inches away from being uh, a touchdown, which would have given them a chance to two-point conversion and then go into overtime. So, yeah, that's a team who's really, really battling. They are not giving up. They're finding ways to get themselves into a winning position, and they're making it exciting. Uh, there's no quit there, and that helps for the energy and sort of the the uh, the culture of a team to be, you know, winning games like that. And so, yeah, they should they should be feeling great. Ottawa should. I mean, and they uh, they're doing doing what it takes to get it done. Uh, you know, they've still got uh, they've still got things to clean up. They've got they've got work to do, and. You know, going to overtime, winning, while that's great for for uh, for our for fans, it's great for the CFL. Like I said, it's great for the culture of a team to do that. But that still means that you know you're you've got some work to do in in, in regular time when you when you have not been able to, to shut these teams out. And so uh, we saw a pretty good performance uh, uh, from the Tie Cats in the last match with Ottawa uh, a few weeks back, and I I, uh, I think we're in for a really great East. Uh, east-to-east matchup tonight. Should be fun to uh, listen to on your radio and on the Ticats Audio Network with Luke Tasker, color analyst, and his co-pilot, R.J. Broadhead, tonight. It all starts with the pregame show at 6.30. Kickoff is at 7.30. Luke, thanks for the time. Have a great call tonight. Rick, thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Ticats Red Blacks tonight. And, of course, the fifth quarter brought to you by Eastgate Ford. Launches on your radio and everywhere else at 11 p.m. or thereabouts. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.